Welcome to the Music History Project. This is part two of a two-part series all about the king. If you missed part one, we put it out last week. You can go check it out. We talked about various topics such as the instruments he played, the early days of his career, as well as some of his recordings. On today's episode, we're going to hear more about his playing career and movie career, as well as more experiences from those who worked closely with him. Stay tuned. It's just such a unique perspective that we get to see the story of, in this case, Elvis, told through the lens of everybody who surrounded him. I just think it's, as we were talking, trying to develop the podcast about Elvis and what focus we wanted to go on and the stories we wanted to tell, one of the things Mike and I talked about pretty heavily was we don't want it just to be a biography of Elvis, names and dates and everything like that. There's plenty of that. Yeah. And so our focus was to get the story from different eyes and the guys who worked with him and encountered him and their experiences because that seems like a story that really hasn't been told right yeah i mean every you can go anywhere and hear all of the famous facts that you want to hear about elvis and and everything that everybody already knows and there's a documentary made every five minutes about the subject you know but hearing the firsthand experiences from the guys that you may not really know that were there behind the scenes um it's just great and yeah. it's it's really cool to see that side and that's exactly what the collection is the oral history uh collection that dan has been working on for a while a very while <laughs> <laughs> mike and i were both alive when he started but <laughs> no comment <laughs> no comment from the peanut gallery um but that's i mean that's the whole purpose is to get these stories and make sure that they're recorded before they're lost forever and so we were trying to brainstorm of possibly other ideas that dan maybe could fill in the gaps on of other kind of maybe different musical icons or stories that could be told in the same light not focusing around elvis so Dan, is there anyone in the collection you can think of um, that maybe are the unsung heroes, quote unquote, of the recording industry or the music industry that helped tell the story of someone most of our listeners would have heard of before? Well, that's a really good question. Let me back up by saying that this collection that is uh, sponsored by NAM and um, funded by NAM and representing all of NAM's members, which is the music products industry around the world. The original intent, of course, was to document their stories, the music manufacturers and the music merchants, the retailers, uh, the music publishers. And, um, and at, over time, that has expanded so that we have had the opportunity to talk with people who are also musicians and um, engineers that really represent sort of the larger concept of making music. And so we are able to pull these together for something like this, a focus on Elvis. Um, but we also have keyword tags uh, that showcase so many other aspects of life, really, of, of social change, uh, like the civil rights movement, uh, like the impact that the Beatles had on musical instruments and retailing in the 1960s when they came on the scene, uh, what the effect of World War II was on the music industry. So there are so many amazing 
sort of byproducts of being able to look at history uh, because of these wonderful stories that we were able to document. Um, but to go back to your point, um, we were thinking earlier and talking about Jim Horn and the Wrecking Crew. I mean, there is a great example of sort of a subcategory of um, in, uh, history that we were able to capture as a result of capturing these interviews about the musical instruments that these guys play. Now we're hearing about what it was like when the Beach Boys came into the studio and had this idea of a thing called Pet Sounds and hearing from three or four different people who were there who could talk about what that session was like and what that led to this historic recording. Um, those kind of things are all over this uh um, collection, and we're so very proud to have this podcast. Another tip to uh, uh, tip of the hat to uh, Mike and Elizabeth for really forging this idea and coming up with this platform to help us showcase this amazing content. And I'm sure everybody's sitting there dying to get onto the website right now and look up all 3,000 plus interviews. Mike, <laughs> do you want to give them that link? Yes, that link is www.namm.org slash library. So as we progress through Elvis's career, starting out with Sun Records and, and the Blue Moon Boys, Billy uh, Black and Scotty Moore, DJ Fontana coming in a little bit later, um, and then the RCA days were all of Elvis's biggest hits in the early 1950s or mid-50s, I should say, uh, All Shook Up, Don't Be Cruel, Hound Dog, Heartbreak Hotel, Jailhouse Rock, uh, and then into Elvis's movie career before he was drafted in 1958, coming back and then getting back into the movies and really, uh, except for a, a, a few occasions, really not recording uh, or performing live for about nine years while he was uh, making all these movies movies in Hollywood. Um, and then the, the comeback special that we talked a little bit about from 1968, and then getting back into live sound and live performances with uh, the Las Vegas concerts and then touring all over the United States in the uh, 1970s. Um, an amazing career. And we sort of uh, got up to the point of his, uh, his movies and uh, we get to hear uh, a couple of different perspectives uh, in this next segment uh, about working with Elvis. Uh, many of the same characters we heard about before with a few new ones. So maybe we can go back and uh, hear from Boots Randolph about working with Elvis. Elvis came to town and I got in on some of his things. As far as I know, I'm the only uh, saxophone player that's ever played a solo on one of Elvis's records. Yeah, that's right. And uh, Reconsider Baby is the only, you know, only time I've ever heard anybody play and uh, it, it, it traveled from one artist to another, and like one producer would say, we want you to come in and play B here. We might have you do something on a session. And I got in on a lot of sessions and didn't play on a, a whole lot of stuff, but if, if they wanted it, I was there, you know. And on Elvis's thing, I probably played more baritone sax on Elvis's stuff than anything else because, like Scotty Moore was mentioned a while ago, I was the world's greatest clobbies player. Uh, Da, da, it's now or never. I played clobbies on that. Oh, you did? I played it, but I, I mean, I'm on the record, but I didn't play sax. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to remember. I played Morocco's on, the, I can't remember one other tune that you did. <laughs> I played baritone sax on uh, Return to Cinder. Mm. Uh, and uh, I played Jug on one of those crazy things he did wild in the country or something. I, I went down to a, a flea market or something and found a brown jug about this tall 
And I played the joke on that. It's on that soundtrack. <laughs> and, and I did things. That, I tried to play juice art, but it hit my teeth. And I said, I'm not playing that thing. That's not part of my criteria. <laughs> Do you have an official credit for playing the jug? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, I got paid for the jug. I still got the jug. It's at home. Doesn't have anything in it, but it's just sitting at home. So next we're going to hear from another familiar voice, and that's DJ Fontana. As you recall, he played drums with Elvis. So he's going to be talking about uh, kind of what Elvis was like as a whole person, as well as his career working with him. He was very easy to work with, no problem. But he had a, such a, he had a very keen ear. He knew exactly what he wanted every minute. If it wasn't right, he wouldn't jump up like a lot of these artists we know. Uh, they raise hell with it. You know, and I know a lot of those. And you do too, I bet you. And, uh, but he'd say, don't worry about it, guys. We'll do it again. No problem. And, uh, yeah, to a point, to a point. Uh, if he thought the record was swinging along and it felt good and he thought he was singing good, if there was a small mistake or something, we'd say, well, we could do that again. There's a little glitch here. He'd say, boys, there wasn't no train wreck. Don't worry about it. Because people are not going to hear that. I was doing a good job. You guys were playing good. It felt good. Let's leave it alone. Let's don't touch it. So he had good music intuition? Yes. He was very good. I think he almost had perfect pitch, actually. You know, he could, he could hear everything that anybody was doing. He played a little bit of guitar, little, little piano, a little bit of drums. He played all these instruments just enough to be dangerous. You know, you never knew what he was going to do or come up with. See, he he, he heard all these things, and, and some of these things that no ten people could play. You know, just one of those things. You know, but he could hear it. No, no. When he when he got in his moves, we let him alone. Yeah. We just we'd go home uh, and he'd call us when you when you're out of your moves. <laughs> uh, and we we found a way to get along with him, but he didn't do that very often. And, and then when you see him, he, he's apologetic. Uh, well, guys, you know something happened. I got you know my mama called or my daddy called, and Colonel called. Something upset him. You know, and he take it out on everybody. And then he'd come back and say, oh, I'm sorry, guys, you know, Colonel made me mad, you know, whatever. But he, he never did blame us for anything. Do you feel he was under a lot of pressure all the time? Do you always feel he was under pressure? Oh, oh, he had to be. If you're dealing with the Colonel, you're under pressure. That's enough right there. To, it, it really is. The Colonel put a lot of pressure on him. Sure he did. Elvis, I don't think Elvis realized it. Because uh, he let the Colonel take care of all his business, which was a bad mistake. You know, he made all the money. He always just got the leftovers, it sounds, from, from the books I've read. You know, it just, it's terrible how he, he did, you know. Everybody made money except Elvis. So next we're going to hear from a new name, uh, Frank DeVito, who was a studio drummer um, for Elvis. Also played with other huge names. One comes to mind, Frank Sinatra. And he started his own percussion company, was it in the early 70s, was it? Um, so he is dear to our hearts here in the music products industry. And he just has this great, great story about 
um, working with Elvis, and I'm, we just have to play the clip. This is a top 10. I've got all my books from the 50s up until today. I've got a cardboard box with all of my date books, I can tell you. You ask me, uh, 1969, uh, you know, uh, April 4th, what, what, what were you doing? I'll look it up, and I'll, and I'll tell you. I was at uh, NBC uh, working with, uh, uh, rehearsing with the Jackson 5. Or uh, 1968, uh, uh, I was uh, rehearsing with that guy there, Elvis Presley, at, at NBC for the, for the comeback special, 1968. And uh, Hal had the job again, but he wasn't showing up for rehearsals because he was too busy doing record dates. So I got to, to play with Elvis. <laughs> and and uh, and then and then we did the album and we, when we did the album, uh, on, uh, did Capital. He was on Capital, wasn't he? Did a Capital album. Uh, Hal played drum set and I and I played conga and bongos and whatever I could pick up, you know. <laughs> but I was on the date, and and that's 40 years ago. And the guys that were on that, I think Chuck Chuck Berghofer and and Don Randy and some of the guys. Uh, I was on a panel uh, not too long ago with some of those guys, and we were talking about those days and the recordings, and uh, we've been getting residuals for 40 years. Oh, <laughs> and I almost turned the job down. And yeah, and, and the best, uh, and we, you know, we get rerun stuff, uh, new use, they call it, you know, hmm. uh, Sinatra and, and um, a, a lot of people. Uh, mostly pop stuff, not too much from the jazz, mostly pop, but, but Elvis, uh, thank you Elvis, great guy, great yeah. guy. We rehearsed in a room about this size, uh, piano, I think Claude Williamson was the piano player, myself, and uh, Elvis was sitting on a stool around the piano, and he'd always have a couple of his buddies there, you know, uh, cousins, whatever, they'd be clowning around between, uh, during breaks, and Elvis was great, he was in his prime then, you know. Every day he wore a black shirt and black pants. Every day the same thing. That was far out for those days. And uh, nice, nice guy. Called everybody, sir. How are you today, sir? And he came in one day, and he, and he and his buddies were smoking these little cigars, you know, and he had a pack of them. And I looked at him, I said, oh, I didn't know you smoked cigars, Elvis. He says, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna give you a couple up. Here, here, light up. And I didn't smoke. But when Elvis offers you a cigar, you smoke. It's like the time I, I was in a car with, with Charlie Parker. Uh, it's related to this. Uh, in the hotel I was living uh, in on, uh, on 50th Street, 200 West 50th Street uh, in New York. Uh, it's a little short block between 6th Avenue and Broadway at a hotel. That's the hotel where Jerry Mulligan and, and, and Chuck and, uh, and Red Mitchell and all these guys lived. <clears throat> and Red Rodney, I was hanging out with Red Rodney. So one afternoon, Red said, what are you doing? I said, nothing. He said, let's go uptown to Joe Maney's pad. Joe Maney was this crazy, wild uh, alto player. He shot himself by accident. Uh, yeah, he was a great player, but he had, a, he had an apartment uptown, and it was kind of down in the basement, and you could play there 24 hours a day. Nobody could hear you, so everybody would go up to the jam. He said, let's go up to Joe's. Uh, so we did that, we got, got on the subway, went uptown, and uh, we're, we're sitting, we weren't playing, we were sitting on a bench here listening to great old bebop players play, not old, there we are, man. and the door opened, and then walks Charlie Parker, and so he, I had met him a couple of times around, you know, wonderful man, great guy, 
very nice gentleman. I, you know, we, we knew he was doing all the drugs, and the, the, but he never looked like he was stoned, never. Never looked drunk, never looked stoned, always proper, clean, and great vocabulary. It's amazing, they tell me he needed no, no formal education, but where he picked up all this knowledge and everything, even with his playing, all his quotes, he would play the classical. Anyway, he comes over to us, ah, oh, you fellas doing all right. Okay, he said, come outside to see my new automobile. And we said, yeah, sure. So Red and I go outside, and it's a 1951 or something, brand new Cadillac with the, I think the fins, it had the fins starting black. It's a Cadillac. Where he got the money to get, because he spent all his money, you know, whatever money he had. He must have gotten a couple of residual checks, uh, big ones or something, and was able to buy, put a down payment. So at least for a while he had this Cadillac. And so we got in, and I'm sitting in the back, and Bird is driving, and Red, Red's sitting next to him. So we're driving around town, you know, it's Cadillac. It's a big deal then. And, and Bert says, what do you think of the ride, fellas? What do you think? And I said, oh, it's great. I've never been in a Cadillac before, you know. And we said, oh, it's wonderful. So he goes in his pocket and he takes out a joint, you know, and lights it up. He's smoking. And he hands it to Red. Now, I had smoked pot before, but I could not handle it. Maybe it's because I was so skinny and scrawny and, you know, <laughs> whatever whatever, but I could not handle it. I, I, and playing, forget it. I tried to play one time, um, forget it, missing the symbol. So, so that was out. But again, you know what I said, when Elvis offers you a cigar, you know, so Bird there smoking a joint, and then at one point Bird turns around and hands it to me. And he's got the mirror, you know, so I can't fake it. So I go, so I take a hold of it, and I give it back to him. But I, anyway. That was, that was my uh, experience with Bird. He was great. He was wonderful. That's awesome. I absolutely adore that story. That's fantastic. Uh, thank you, Frank DeVito. Another uh, interesting guy that we want to segue right into uh, is Mike Moran, who was uh, one of the recording engineers for Elvis uh, in the last several albums that Elvis uh, recorded. Uh, mostly in Memphis, but uh, in the jungle room there in, at Graceland. And Mike has a very interesting perspective. Here he is talking about working with Elvis. Elvis came about in the early 70s when he was playing in Madison Square Garden. Uh, he was at the Hilton Hotel, and he was doing a, sa a rehearsal in the Hilton Hotel. So they said, Mike, go down to the Hilton and set up the sound down there so he could rehearse with the band and use microphones and everything. So I said, okay, so we just gave him one mic and everything, you know. And he comes out and he's rehearsing, you know, and they're kidding around and everything. And I was like more in back of the uh, orchestra. And he, he says, uh, where's the sound man? It's like, here I am. <laughs> So that was the first time I <laughs> met him, you know, yeah. And then after that, a couple of years, two years maybe, uh, I got called into the, uh, the studio office there. They said, Mike, they want you to go down to Memphis to record Elvis at Stack Studios, you know. I said, okay. I mean, that was very strange because they only had 
southern engineers and uh, Elvis was doing fine, you know. So I'm, I went down there and I recorded him in Stax. And uh, Stax was a very famous studio at the time, you know, for southern blues and everything like that, very good sound. But we had a remote truck because they didn't have 16 track at the time. So uh, they only had eight tracks. So we sent down a 16 track remote truck. And uh, I was outside the studio in the parking lot and recorded everything into the truck and uh, recorded it. But the first take I did, well, the first tape I played back inside from the truck, I had headphones on and I'm listening. And Elvis is saying, boy, that sounds terrible. And I'm, I'm saying, what the hell is he hearing? I'm listening. And then I take the head, and it sounds great in the truck. And we're playing back in speakers inside. So I go running inside, and oh my God, it sounded like crap. It was terrible. I go over to check the speakers in the back. One of the uh, speaker cables were off. <laughs> Hooked it up, put it back in, went out, played it back again. Mm. Ah, I thought my career was going to be cut short with Elvis, really. <laughs> but then I did a, you know, we did around 21 tracks in Stax Studios. I think I don't know how many we did. And um, everything was good. And I, then, I, then I recorded them live in uh, Memphis in the, uh, when he played live down there. And then I recorded them at Graceland. Set up the Jungle Room as a studio and had the remote truck outside. What were the acoustics like for that room? Did you have to add a lot to it? No, you didn't have to because it was just a, a small, considerably, not a small tight room, because you could put the whole rhythm section in there and the chorus and the piano, and you just buffered the walls so it wouldn't be uh, too live, and the drums were enclosed halfway. Hmm. Ronnie Tutt played the drums, he was good. And we did a couple of tracks in there, and that was it. That was the year before he died, a couple of months before he died. For that was his last studio. Yes, yeah. Yeah. He, yeah. And uh, they got one or two records, return, no, uh, Way Down. Yeah. Way Down, I think they got out of that. Right, yeah. Yeah. Mm. So back to the stacks. You know, this is the 40th anniversary, so you've been interviewed and talking a lot about that. Yes. What? What comes out as one of your favorite memories or, or memories about doing that besides the great speaker story? Uh, uh, the first or second night we were there, it was around 1 o'clock in the morning, and Elvis is sang a couple of songs, and he says, uh, where's the food? Let's eat. There was no food. So he says, how do you expect people to work all night and not have any food for them? I'm going home. That was it. <laughs> the king's got to eat. Right. <laughs> and another thing, he was like three years older than me. But he called me, sir. Sir, what can I do for you? You know, um, a real, you know, real great manners and uh, really nice. Hmm. Really nice. And so to switch it up, you did the uh, live recording. Yes. What was that like? That was extremely difficult because Elvis didn't do any rehearsal previous. 
It was one shot. It was a one shot deal, and uh, I forget who stood in for him at the mic, but the orchestra wasn't playing the way they were supposed to play. You know, you find that out fast. I expected them to get more excited once he came out, and they did. They blew the the meters. The meters right apart. Even though I pulled down all the levels, you know, but it was salvageable. And it came out very good. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably my favorite of the recorded Elvis yeah. live. Yeah, that's a fantastic album. And what, what console were you using? We used a console we had to bring in from Wally Hyder. I don't know if you... Uh, Wally had uh, studios in California. And our truck wasn't available. To go, it was short, short notice, or anything. so we had to fly a console in from California while he hired us a console. And did you have the same crew that you would use helping you? Uh, no, I just, uh, not all the time. I just have a, a guy I take with me from New York, another engineer or a technician, and a maintenance guy, maybe three of us, that would uh, go down. And uh, one would run the tape machines and the other guy would be on stage for any problems. But the sound crew we had that did Elvis concerts were excellent. So we'd use basically all their microphones. And we'd just add a couple of our own. Because the console we had there didn't fit that many uh, microphones. Hmm. You know, probably 18 at the most. If it was the truck, we could have fit 24 uh, or even doubled up and got 36 or something like that. On the truck, we had a brand new console for the time. It was all transistorized and everything, and it was uh, uh, one of the, with the 36, 36 inputs. Wow. And it was uh, very good. And 16 tracks, uh, so. So is it true that you, um throw it in your wife's face that you got to meet Elvis and she didn't? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> okay, I just wanted to clarify that. <laughs> so uh, when I came back from Elvis the first time, and uh, I didn't say any, you know, I wasn't. So, so she says, uh, uh, well, okay, tell me, tell me, how was Elvis? I said, you don't want to know. She says, what do you mean, what do you mean? I said he was two, over 220 pounds or something, and he was always wearing a black cape. She says, you're jealous. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> uh, another time, it, it's really nothing to do with music, but uh, uh, Linda got invited to the White House during the Clinton, President Clinton era, and we're going go down to the White House, and uh, and uh, she gets in, they wouldn't let me in. So I'm stuck outside, and uh, nothing's happening, so I go down to one of the side streets, and I go have something to eat. I come back, and I'm waiting. I say, Mr. Moran, Mr. Moran, okay, you can go in now, you know, and they let you in, you know. And I'm, uh, so I'm standing there, and uh, the uh, Marine Corps band was playing, you know, and, I said, oh, I'm playing right in my ear. I said, i got to get out of here. So I walked across the lawn. It was the morning that a small plane 
crashed into the White House lawn. But they still s decided to let the, 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 the show go on with the, uh, they said, no, this isn't going to stop us and everything. Well, the day after or whatever it was. And so I walked across the White House lawn to the other side and I'm looking around. And, and so all of a sudden somebody hits me on the side, another guy hits me on the side. And I say, oh, well, it was Secret Service guys, you know. So they don't say anything to me or anything. I, so I said, I'm getting out of here. I walk them back. And they stop me and they said, where are you going? I said, I belong over the other side. You know, I just walked across. They said, you can't walk across the White House lawn. I said, okay. And I left. I walked out the gate. I went back to the hotel and Linda comes back. She says, what happened to you? We had people looking for you. Everybody said they let, they let you in. The Secret Service says you were there and everything. What happened? And I tell her the story and she's still yelling at me. She says, Bob, now you'll never get to meet the president. You know. So I said, Linda, I can still meet the president, but you'll never get to meet Elvis. <laughs> So that was my big thing over, huh? Yeah. And a year later. And a year later, she gets called back to the White House to do something else. And, and uh, oh yeah, we're still Clinton. And uh, go up and meet the president, shake his hand and everything. And I walk out the door and I walk out. I say, Linda, I met the president. <laughs> and you'll never meet Elvis. <laughs> All right, that was Mike Moran, who Dan mentioned was an engineer with Elvis. And we're going to hear from DJ again, who is going to be talking about <clears throat> how his life changed after connecting with Elvis and Sam Phillips, as well as selling Elvis's contract to RCA when it kind of outgrew Sun and needed to move on, as well as uh, you're going to hear DJ talking about Elvis joining the Army, which I know a lot of these guys mentioned. We pulled... DJ's clip specifically, but most of these guys do mention Elvis's time in the army, and the reviews are mixed about <laughs> about his ex uh, uh, what they perceive as his experience in the army and how he came back a little bit different. Um, so we'll hear from DJ and his take on it. The concerts we were playing, we'd have Johnny Cash, Jerry Lee, we have Roy Orbison sometimes, uh, Carl Perkins. Tickets one dollar for all these people. Uh, little high school gyms, uh, football stadiums, small high school football stadiums. So, you know, there's no money really. And maybe maybe each artist got $150 for everybody. And that was it, you know. I don't care who the artist is, country, pop, rock. You never know when you cut a record if the people are gonna like it or the, or the company's gonna back you or what. But he, he had an ace on him. Uh, Steve Scholes, the guy that brought him to Victor, paid the 35000 for him. Well, either he got a hit record or he was out of a job. That's what it amounted to. So Steve wasn't going to let it die, you know, because RCA said, well, we're going to stick our neck out. Now, if you don't, uh, if he doesn't do something, one or two records, out you go. Well, we're going to lose $35,000. And they didn't want to do that. So luckily, he hit, you know. You know what I thought? Better him than me. 
Well, I thought, well, that's the end of my job for a while, you know. But it, it was okay. I, I went back to Louisiana and worked with the clubs again. Until he got, well, he come back two or three times and record up here in Nashville. And so I come up here with him, and we did four or five things when he take a break from the army or whatever, you know. Then he went, he went, he went overseas for a little while, and he come back. And that's when we went, did, we went down to do the Frank Sinatra show. Right after he come out of the army. So it worked out okay. It was fine. I love that <laughs> question and then response from uh, DJ Fontana. Better him than me. Yeah. <laughs> what, do you, Dan, do you know? Trivia question, hmm. pop quiz. Do Here you know what year Elvis was drafted? Yeah, 1958. Oh, too easy. And wow. what was interesting is this is really, I mean, this guy was on fire at the time. Just as a, a quick reminder, Elvis made several movies that were really, really popular. In fact, I think really my favorite Elvis movies were the ones that he made before the Army. I thought he had some some acting chops, uh, certainly in King Creole, um, Jailhouse Rock, Loving You, and his first one was uh, Love Me Tender. Uh, these were all followed with huge recordings. Uh, he was on the Ed Sullivan Show several times. His uh, music was really kind of unstoppable until Uncle Sam showed up. And uh, in, at uh, Graceland, uh, at one point, I'm not sure if it's on display anymore, but there was a pile that must have been at least four feet high of petitions signed by all of Elvis's fans on both sides of the piece of paper, uh, pleading with the government not to draft Elvis. Um, but they went through with it, and it really was a very difficult period for Elvis on, on lots of uh, fronts. Um, one, uh, this is during the time that his mother had passed away, so he had to take leave uh, to attend her funeral. Um, this is also the time when uh, Buddy Holly, the Big Bopper, and Richie Valance were killed in an airplane crash. Uh, that was a, a very telling moment for uh, the early days of, of rock and roll. Um, this was the time where the uh, the teen idols like Frankie Avalon and Fabian were really becoming much more popular um, than than the aggressive rock and roll bands of like Fats Domino and and Buddy Holly and Elvis previous. So uh, it was a turning point for a, a lot of things, and I think it made it easy for. Um, to Elvis to transition into something a little safer when he came back from the army, which were the movies that he made over the next nine years, which a lot of people felt uh, really crushed his uh, his musical inspiration. Um, and of course, that all changed with the comeback special in 1968. But interestingly enough, I think um, the the fact of the the matter of the the army to me was that. It really was a turning point for a lot of people like the Beatles that would come later, the, the Rolling Stones, you know, the, the British invasion. That gave them pause, I think, you know, in listening to interviews with uh, John Lennon. When Elvis went to the army, it really solidified their interest in wanting to bring this American music back. Um, and so they did their own version of the early days of rock and roll, of course, and uh, imitating them at first and then being greatly influenced by them and creating their own sound based on that and wrapping up that element, that sound, uh, and uh, producing their own music and then 
presenting that to uh, audiences around the world. So a very interesting thing can be looked at uh, several ways. And certainly in retrospect, that moment when Elvis went in the army was a great inspiration for a lot of people. And if you're a little rusty on your American history, and we've seen we have some listeners from all over the globe who might not be familiar with the concept, um, 58, it would have been uh, Elvis would have been drafted as a result of the need for men in the Korean War. And the draft is uh, required service that, that the government can enact and force you to join the military. Um, hasn't been used since Vietnam in the late 60s, early 70s. Do we know off the top of our head for people who might not remember what did Elvis get? A, I don't want to say special treatment, but did he get a different job assignment in the army because of his celebrity status? I know that happened quite a bit in World War II. So. Well, I think part of the ad campaign that the Army was trying to do, because everybody was interested in this topic, as you can imagine, it wasn't just the fans that signed that petition. Um, people were really interested in what was going on. So when Elvis went to his basic training in Fort Hood, the cameras were everywhere. Uh, you know, there's still footage that I see on the Internet of Elvis's uh, famous hair being shaved off. And, you know, this was media uh, frenzy. Uh, he was stationed in uh, Germany, uh, and he was in charge of uh, a tank patrol. Uh, so uh, I don't know that he was treated a whole lot differently just because so many eyes were on him. But uh, I'm sure he didn't have to pull all the hard uh, <laughs> duties as well. Germany's he, pretty far from uh, North and South Korea. So, yes. you know. <laughs> uh, so we're also going to hear transitioning, kind of segueing into talking about Elvis coming back from the army and his shift into his movie career. Uh, we're going to hear a lot about that and everybody's take on their not always uh, stunning opinions of Elvis's movie career. But one thing that kind of gets mentioned throughout by all of these guys that we've interviews with is that he Elvis was able to put it aside through his warm up process. So, Mike, do you want to kind of go over what the next clip's going to be about and everything? Yeah, so um, we're going to be hearing from James Burton, and he's going to be talking about uh, Elvis warm Elvis's warm up as well as uh, gospel songs. Yeah, he loved to sing gospel songs, and, and uh, mostly at at night after after we go play two shows, uh, he invited he, he would invite uh, J D. Sumner and Stamps and and all the gospel singers up, and uh, and uh, he would invite us up to come up and play. He was he would hope everybody would jump in and start playing, but uh, he really enjoyed that, and he would sing all night, and all night, all up, all day long. As, as long as everybody would stay there, he would sing, and he loved it. He loved gospel. He just really did. He just, uh, you know, he just got a kick out. He loved bass singers. Uh, he always liked to hear J.D. sing that real low voice, you know, and um, he, he liked uh, tenor singers. But he enjoyed it. I mean, he just... Uh, I mean, he was singing all night and all day. I think this is a great opportunity to talk just briefly about Elvis's musical influences. Obviously, um, gospel was number one. That was the first songs that Elvis remembered singing, going to church with his parents in Tupelo, Mississippi as a kid, and being greatly influenced by the passion that he heard people singing these songs. Uh, next, of course, was the blues that was available to him. Uh, some of his friends that he knew in a different part of Tupelo that uh, he grew up in, uh, listening to the blues on porch, st uh, porch steps all over the place uh, as a young kid. 
and uh, close to the train station there. So these were sort of the first uh, musical introductions to Elvis, and I think he always relied on those styles of music when he needed to. And we talked a little bit earlier about uh, the movie years in the 1960s being difficult on him. It wasn't necessarily the direction he saw his career going. Uh, a lot of the movies had the very same script with just different songs. Um, and I think that was also very difficult for Elvis. Uh, they were very successful, and in between some of these sort of, uh, uh, I sometimes call them the gruesome soundtrack songs, there were gems like I Can't Help Falling in Love With You, which is a huge hit um, from Blue Hawaii. Uh, Return to Cinder also came from the movies. So there were some great hits that came in uh, these soundtracks, but I think overall, um, there weren't a whole lot of passion, but Elvis tried to make the most of them. But I think that he, uh, when he needed to retreat and take a few moments for himself to muster up the energy, uh, he relied on gospel music. And the piano was always on set or close thereby, and he would play some music, ask some folks to come over and sing with him, and that would really sort of put him back in the, the proper mode. And we've heard that time and time again. Uh, even the the very last time Elvis played uh, music, uh, he sang a couple of songs just before going to bed the night that he passed away. And one of them was a, a gospel favorite of his. So he relied on this uh, throughout his whole life. And uh, it's really neat for me to have these concepts being reinforced by folks that knew him, such as the next guy we're gonna hear from, our good man, Scotty Moore. Going in the studio at night and singing gospel songs with Jordan Ayers all night, the daylight, which was basically true because they, each movie might have one real good song in it. And then the rest of the stuff was, you know, cookie cutter. Mm -hmm. And so he just trying to psych himself up and get in the mood. And finally, three or four o'clock in the morning, he'd stand up and say, okay, guys, we got to cut this crap. Now, he didn't say crap, and uh, he'd do the best he could. He would put his, he would really work on it. Mm. But he just, and I, I may, like I said, I may be wrong, may be way off base, but I think that's, he wanted to show that he knew what he could do, and I think that's what he wanted to get back in the studio without any interference. And next we're going to hear again from DJ Fontana about um, his take on Elvis making movies. Movies are not fun. Uh, no, we get up at 5, go through the gate at 7, makeup, wardrobe, the whole thing, sit around till 12 o'clock, take a break, go back, sit around till 5 or 6, take a break and go home. That was it. That was the day. If they shot anything, 30 seconds, we were through. Now, the other actors, the other people, they had more to do. We didn't have anything to do. If you've seen any of the pictures, you saw it. We played little background stuff, and that's all we had to do. So that, that wasn't fun. That was fun, wasn't it? Yeah. Hey, we were real cowboys. And what The one I really liked was with the, with the short pants. Uh, the, the GI blues with the, uh, what do they call them things? Uh, anyhow, the, Alpine suits, you know. 
I, I went in there in the morning for ward, uh, for wardrobe, and uh, those guys were always pulling stuff on you. You know, that, that you'd go down and they'd give you a Batman suit or something. You know, they say, well, you're supposed to wear this, DJ. I said, oh, come on, guys. You know, they're waiting up there, and they're gonna get mad. We're gonna get fired. And uh, every day was something new, you know. So I went in that day, and they threw this leather stuff on me, and I said, come on, guys. We don't have time. And I said, this is it. And it was. I walked upstairs and the lady come around. She said, uh, we got to fix your knees. I said, for what? The short pants, you know. I said, well, the camera might. I said, no, the camera won't see your knees. I'm going to be sitting behind the bass drum. And she had to powder their knees and put makeup on them. I said, well, that's what you have to do. You have to do that, you know. So that was DJ, and next we're going to hear back from James Burton again, and we're actually going to smush together a whole bunch of clips from him. So let me give you the rundown before we start. The first clip you're going to hear is James talking about dressing up older Elvis songs to make the Aloha special work. Um, And then we're going to hear from James talking about Elvis buying his first Cadillac, which is kind of a cool story. And then uh, Elvis's interest in the band, as well as James' take on Elvis's live performance. And also, finally, not forgotten about, is James talking about Elvis's big return to Las Vegas and how they were much more prepared for it the second time around. The Aloha special, uh, to me, was a very special show. And... uh, uh, I didn't feel that we, we added some new songs. I know I was playing uh, an old Hank Williams song uh, when everybody was on a break. And Elvis came up and asked me, what is that? You know, and this old Hank Williams song, I'm so lonesome I could cry. And um, uh, he said, oh, get the band up here. Let's, uh, let's run this and do it. And he put it in the show. And uh, I just thought it, it, the show to me was together. It, it was like everything worked. Uh, all the tempos and everything just seemed to be just right. Uh, that was one of my favorite shows. That's neat. So, I didn't know that you were the one who introduced that song to him because there was one recorded where he says, maybe it's that Aloha from Way where he says it's the it's probably the saddest song you ever heard. That yeah, I think yeah, so. Yeah. Yeah, unbelievable. That's cool. Yeah, you know the we we did some great shows in Madison Square Garden, but the recording came out the recording that that uh, they released was so fast uh, it seemed like the, uh, the they sped the uh, the disc up to to get all the songs on or something it was just it seemed it's very everything was so fast you ain't nothing but that long yeah, it was just incredible I mean all the songs were fast uh, even the trilogy all those everything was uh, but the Aloha special was one of my favorites well, that was, speaking of breaking records, were mo- didn't most people, I think there was some amazing number, like more people saw that than the guy landing on the moon or something at that point? I mean, Oh, absolutely. Billions. Yeah. Yeah. They're just incredible. How do you not get nervous about doing something like that? <laughs> I, I don't know. You never think about it, about it that way, you know? You just, you just do it, you know? It's... And we did two shows that day, actually. We did a, a benefit show uh, that afternoon, oh, yeah. and then we went and did the night show. And, but that was, a, that, was a, that was a really, really fun show to do. When Elvis went in to buy his first Cadillac in uh, my hometown, Shreveport, he walked into the Cadillac dealer, and, and some guy walked up to him and, and uh, can I help you, sir? 
I'd like to uh, buy a couple of cars, you know. And he said, well, uh, uh, how old are you? And he said, well, I'm, I'm, it was like 18 years old at that time, you know. And uh, he said, how would you, how do you expect to pay for these cars? He said, cash, you know, and the guy looked at him and said, yeah, okay. He said, well, I'll be over here at my office when, uh, when you get ready. And uh, he didn't offer to show him the cars or look around. Anyway, he walked off. And when another young guy came up and was talking to Elvis and, and uh, took him over, showed him the cars and talked to him and everything. So Elvis ordered five Cadillacs and he paid the guy in cash. And the young kid, so the older man that, that kind of flipped him off, you know, I imagine he's a, had a pretty funny feeling about all that, you know. He lost out on his commission. But I thought that's pretty cool. Elvis went in and just paid cash for five Cadillacs. <laughs> Amazing. He loved to do that sort of stuff, didn't he? Oh, he did, yeah. He just loved to give out gifts. And and it, it he felt so good to see the look on someone's face, you know. How happy, you know, they were. I mean, it was amazing. He, but he's like that. He loved to give. I mean, he'd give you a shirt off his back. He's just a wonderful man. Everything musically was in his head. And he could, as soon as he would sing a song, he would uh, automatically have a feeling of, well, this this is going to work or it's not going to work. And uh, But he, he would always go to the musician. He would come to me and say, what do you think? Uh, how about the song? Is the song okay? Uh, is the uh, he, he wanted our our opinion, and uh, but he was a very musical person, and uh, he had he had what you call almost perfect pitch. And I mean, he could uh, he could go right to the the key, whatever key the song was in. He could, you know, he could walk around, forget about it, but he'd come back, and he would always be in that same key. And he wouldn't want to, you know, it was his range. He had an incredible range in his voice. I mean, very low, very high, and uh, very great control. But, yeah, he, uh, he pretty much knew exactly what he wanted. Uh, he did a great variety show, uh, all the songs, uh, everything, you know. It seemed like everything he did on stage just worked. All the ballads, all the fast tunes, and, of course, you know, he's all over the stage. And uh, he had so much... Uh, Charisma, you know, just incredible. And of course, it, once in a while you could hear hear the music, or you could hear the his voice or something. The loud screams and hollers and clapping and people—it just got crazy. But um, he just—he had it all together. It was wonderful. And what was your favorite part about that? Well, the excitement was uh, was there, and the great band. Oh, the great band. We had the orchestra, the big orchestra, and, and um, uh, it was just. Uh, Oh, it was just uh, incredible. I mean, uh, so much stuff going on, and and you had to pay attention to Elvis because you never knew what he was going to do next. He never stuck to the song list, you know. So you didn't, you know, he might change in the middle of a stream or something, you know. It's amazing, but he was wonderful, and the fan, the fans, just millions of them, they, they loved him. Well, he was very, very nervous about going back into Vegas, and uh, as a matter of fact, the night of the show, we're getting ready to open. And Elvis walked up to me backstage, and he was so nervous. He said, you know, I don't know if I could go out there and do this, you know. And I said, I, I said, Elvis, once you walk out on stage, 
He said, everybody out there loves you, and it's going to be just incredible. When you walk on stage, after you sing two or three songs, it's going to be like you're at home in your living room. And he said, well, I hope so. He was really nervous. I mean, the whole front rows were nothing but movie stars and, and uh, entertainers, great entertainers. And uh, the whole room's full. I mean, just amazing. And he was, uh, actually, he was very uh, wound up. He was, you know, but when he went out and did the show, it just, it, it opened up a whole new world for him. I mean, he just said, he was, he was afraid that, you know, being away from doing live shows for so long that maybe they forgot about him or maybe, uh, you know, he didn't know how they would accept him, you know. But, uh, boy, I tell you, they, they loved it and uh, he did too. Now we're going to hear from DJ Fontana again and we're going to do kind of the same thing, put a bunch of clips together. So here's the rundown of what we're going to hear next. Uh, first, he's going to talk about Elvis's comeback. Um, as well as Elvis and Roy Orbison and what they were doing together, as well as Elvis working with Frank Sinatra. Um, after that, we do have a clip um, where DJ Fontana was taking some questions from uh, the audience at this Q&A that he was doing. The audio is a little bit um, fuzzy, I guess I could say, so we apologize if, if your ears hurt a little bit but it shouldn't be too bad i'm going to try to work some magic on it and he's talking about working benefit concerts with elvis um the start of his movie career and then just working with elvis in general elvis called so we went out to do that that's the first time he had did anything you know since the movies and uh he was scared and uh he always wanted people around him that he was comfortable with that's why on sessions he never changed people no no strangers he makes him made him nervous you know so we went out, and that little platform was probably as big as this carpet here for all of us. And they had a set of drums sitting there, studio stuff. And uh, they come back a little bit later, and they said, we're having trouble shooting around the drums, the cameras, and, the, and, the, and it's, it's reflecting off the camera lens, you know, the hardware. And they were spraying them down and everything. And I said, well, well he said, what can we do about it? I said, throw them down. He said, what are we going to do? I said, now, we've played a lot of songs with the back of a guitar case, and we did, you know. A lot of those sounds you hear was the back of a guitar. Uh, Don't be cruel, shut up, stuff like that. And it, I said, it'll work. They said, well, you know, that's a good idea. Because uh, that's what we want. We want you guys just to get in around and just talk, play. You don't have to remember any lines. You don't have to do anything. And we'll cut you off when we get tired. So that's that's how it really happened, you know, just, yeah, well, he had to be, you know, and then he grabbed Scotty's guitar, which Scotty didn't like it, Scotty was real particular who touched his guitar, and that was what Tom Elvis got to do with the guitar, it was scratched all the head, <laughs> you know, he just bang away, you know, but he was playing a little lead on that one, so it wasn't as bad, you know, so Scotty said, okay, yeah, go ahead and do it. <laughs> No, that's, that's the last thing I did. Oh, that 68, yeah. And then he, he, he wanted to go back to Vegas, and they called. And I don't know, we had been to Vegas early, and they didn't like us. So uh, I, didn't, I had been on the road off and on with different people for 20 years by then. And I said, nah, it's, it's time to get out, you know. And now I'm sorry I did, but, uh, you know, sometimes you have to make a move. And I wanted to come here and, and 
record with other people and just do that. So I've done that for another 20 years after, after I left Elvis. And, yeah, I always go by the house. Yeah, I'd go by and see him, yeah. Because if you didn't go by there, somehow or another he found out you come to I heard his feelings. Yeah, he, he said, hey, uh, you were here in December. I said, yeah. He said, I come here to come by. I said, well, I don't want to bother you. He said, you're not going to bother me. You come by here. He always wanted his friends to come by and see him, you know. He couldn't get out. So he thought I might have knew something that he didn't know, you know. <laughs> Up to about a year or so ago, my arms got, well, they hurt a bit, really bad, my feet, and uh, my shoulders, I'd play three or four songs, and it just wears me out, they, they get, it's a sore. So I don't play, I played maybe twice in a year. Elvis was a great fan of Roy's. He said, boy, listen to that guy sing, because we worked a lot of shows with Roy, and he said, man, if I could sing like that, boy, I'd have me. But he was doing a pretty good job, I thought, you know, Elvis was. But he just loved Roy's high-pitched, high you know, height and just scream up there and never hardly opened his mouth. Uh, if you ever saw Roy work, he opened his mouth about that far and that's it. And you figure, how's he gonna come out? How's he gonna do that, you know? But it come out with him. Great artist, Roy was a great artist. Oh yeah, we had more fun than anybody. Yeah, we, we had a lot of fun. It, it, we, we did a lot of work, we did a lot of driving, uh, you know, four or five hundred miles overnight, every night, seven days a week. But, Heck, we were young, we could do that, you know. And him and Frank got along fine for some reason, you know. Frank's a hard man to deal with, but sometimes, you know, they got along great. We went to Hawaii a couple times and did that. We did a couple of benefits for the city of Memphis. That's about all he really did. And then he started, you know, all the movie stuff, you know. And we'd go out and do that, come back. He was doing like three pictures a year. Yeah, all the tracks. We finally got tired of being actors. <laughs> we weren't actors, you know. You've seen those actors, you pretty bad. Uh, so, <laughs> but anyhow, we weren't actors. I said, well, you're an actor, we're, we're gonna go home, you know. So he said, we'll go home, you know. And then he called us when he got ready for another one. Tell us about, you know, we hear these stories about how you get kind of tired of those movies. Is that really what launched that idea of going back to those movies? Yeah, well, he was tired of those movies. You can't blame him, you know. You know, some of the tunes were terrible. Ito Eats and Dominic the Bull and some of the real great titles. Uh, but it's a funny thing, he, he knew that they were bad, but he'd come up and say, guys, you know, now we know what we got to work with. Let's do the best job we can possibly do. We don't want to hurt the writer's feelings. He was always worried about hurting somebody's feelings, you know. He said, let's just do it right. We'll do all we can to fix it. And sometimes you can't fix tunes, you know. No, not Jerry, no. Yeah, that would have been hard to deal with. I worked with Jerry four days. Hardest four days of my life. I, I wouldn't want to do it again. I like Jerry, nice man, always hard to deal with. So I just, after four days, I said, don't never call me again, please. I know, I, you know, I, I like most of them that I hear back, I play them every now and then. Uh, but I really go back to his gospel tunes, because uh, he was very sincere about that. 
He didn't rush through those things. Some of them we rushed through the, the other, other tunes. But those he loved so much, he wanted to get them exactly like he wanted. So those are my favorites, I guess. And he could sing the fire out of them, too. Pardon? Well, for me, he was. You know, other people may not think that way. But, uh, you know, the guy had a lot of talent. He could have been a good actor had they let him, had the colonel uh, done something with him. Uh, he sang better than most that I've heard. Uh, I hear a lot of them now that. Uh, <laughs> well, I don't want to talk about it. But some of them really sing bad out of tune. I've never heard him one time sing out of tune or lose his timing. He had excellent timing in his whole body, just you know, tempo. He understood that. No, I have no idea what's out there. They come up with something new every day, though. It's a lot of bootleg out there, and everybody buys them. Some of them are better than the RCA stuff, anyhow. They really are. Who's? Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Well, they were nice people. Uh, the mama used to worry about him, you know, and uh, the daddy. Uh, He'd worry, but it wasn't the mother, but really, you could tell she was worried all the time. And uh, we'd go by and pick him up. She said, now you boys take care of my baby. And my baby, you know. He was bigger than all of us. <laughs> and uh, so we'd get down the road maybe 100 miles, stop the car. I said, well, for what? I never called my mother. Every couple hundred miles, he'd call his mother, see how she's doing. So they really were, they, were, they really got on good. If his mother said, whatever she said, he believed Because we were getting a lot of bad press early on. And he said, Mama, you know, they're talking bad about her. She said, son, you ain't doing anything wrong. You're doing everything right. He said, okay. That's the end of it. Yeah, well, well he had to have a job. You know, and, and he, was, he, he took care of a lot of the paperwork. And, picking up receipts uh, and, and trying to see that Elvis didn't spend a lot of money, but it didn't do him a lot of good. He spent more money he could make, you know. And Vernon said, Elvis, uh, they were poor people. He didn't want to be broke again, the old man. He said, Elvis, don't, don't buy that, don't buy that. Oh, we'll, we'll make some more money, don't worry about it, you know. One time bought 13 pickup trucks. Daddy liked to have a heart attack early. He gives it to all the guys, you know. He was always screaming and hollering. It didn't do much good. Yeah, a lot of the guys, well, we was talking earlier about George Klein. George went to school with him. Uh, Joe Esposito. Now, some of the guys turned against him. Uh, you know, uh, I'm not going to mention their names, but uh, they said a lot of bad things, wrote a lot of bad books. You know, how do you do that when a guy takes you off the street and makes sure you don't starve, buys your houses, buys your cars, buys your clothes? Now how do you turn against a guy like that? You just, you don't do it, you know? 
Well, when you go to Vegas, it has to change. You have to be biggest with the most of us. You know, you, you got to make more noise than the guy next door. You know, you got all these big artists. You know, they got the big bands, so he, he had to get with them, you know. And I don't blame him for that. Some of the stuff he did, I didn't really like. It was a little cluttered, but uh, that's what they needed, I guess. Yeah, we bombed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. We were supposed to work two weeks. After the first week, the guy said, well, you know, come on, guys, you know. Well, they was out there, they had, uh, they were eating their $40 steaks, you know. They didn't want to hear three little pieces, bounce out, a lot of noise. And, uh, and we were up against uh, Oklahoma, the show Oklahoma, uh, the big production, you know. And uh, Freddie Martin and his band, so, uh, and then we get out there with three little pieces and look a little bit uh, shallow, you know. <laughs> they, they played a couple stingers for us, you know, going into a bridge or on the ending, but that's it. You know, that's all we had. <laughs> so we, no, they didn't like us too well. Did they actually boo you? No, no, they were polite. <laughs> and they look around, you know. And one, one Saturday, they, they, they uh, opened it, which they never do. They opened the casino with that room for kids, teenagers. The place was jammed for the kids. And of course they applauded it was good, you know. But the older people, they just, you know, they, they went in to see a, a Broadway show. what's out there. They, they release so much stuff and, and, and they, they package it, you know, different. It's all the same material, but they just put another picture on the cover or something and that's about it. And people think it's different. They may have an outtake that's a little bit different, but not very often, you know. They're basically the same. benefit for the USS Arizona and what they did later on after a lot of years they put a plaque up there you know and, uh, donated so much money Elvis Presley well I don't know what happened uh, the city people or something they took it down and I don't know if they ever did they ever put that statue back up uh, they you know and he raised a lot of money to, to build that platform you know and uh, I thought it was kind of dumb for them to take that down they would all the fans and they were still working trying to get it back up and eventually they'll do it. He did a lot of charity. Yeah, he did a lot. Uh, and, and when he didn't do a lot of charities, every year he'd call the mayor to Grayson. He said, well, here's 100000 uh, Give it to who you think the one the charity needed the most. Don't tell him you got it from me. Don't tell him nothing. Here's the money. You just divide it like you see fit. So nobody really knew what he was doing. All right, as we move away from the interviews talking about playing with Elvis and his movie career, we're going to kind of wrap up. It seems like this has gone by way too quick for how long we thought and comprehensive this was going to be. I mean, maybe, I'm sure 
post-production Mike will disagree with that statement right yeah, there. Yes. But it does, it just, this podcast has just flown by. I can't believe it. I think it's it. just because of how much we all love Elvis. That's right. What? Uh, or no. maybe Dan's energy yeah. is just that's, leaking. That's gotta be what it is. I mean, we, uh, we gotta say, Mike and I don't dislike Elvis. We like Elvis. We enjoy Elvis. But it's just a whole different level when you work with Dan. <laughs> you Dan just, from Nam. You just so. become Elvis. Yeah, if you ever see Thank this you. guy on the street and you're struggling to m- make a conversation with him, just walk up and be like, Elvis? And then... And then you'll be there for five hours. To, yeah, then you don't have to say anything. So it's great. Um, so as we wrap up our last segment, we're going to call it Elvis the conclusion which sounds kind of ominous but i love it sounds like a like a tv movie or something yeah like a yeah (laughs) i like it though um and so it's kind of our final thoughts from all these cool guys that we've heard interviews from and kind of their lasting remarks and legacies and their overall take which i just think there's some real gems in here so if if you are still listening which i hope you are you better be Make sure you continue because it's going to keep getting better. So, And we're hearing from some great folks. I mean, we get to hear again from James Burton, DJ Fontana, Scotty Moore, uh, talking about um, really his legacy and their impression on, on who he was as a performer. So um, I think you'll appreciate this segment. Yeah, so the first clip is from James Burton, and he talks, his perspective on this clip is talking about leaving working with Elvis to pursue other gigs um, and how his kind of how his time working with Elvis came to the end and then as well as hearing about Elvis's death and what an impact that had on him. You know while I was working with him I was with uh, well I was with uh, also Emmylou Harris the hot band and uh, I was traveling with her back-to-back tours you know I would go out with Elvis for a couple weeks and and Emmy would book a tour. Uh, She would always work her schedule sort of around hours you know so when we were off she'd book a tour and we'd go go play but it was a uh, you know when uh, actually when I was not working with Elvis uh, I was in the studio recording with other artists and I just continued uh, what I normally did you know before I went to work with Elvis and uh, I remember one night we had a party upstairs at the, the uh, suite in uh, at the Hilton in Vegas and uh, Tom Jones was up uh, ha- having a little party with us, and and he came. Tom came up to me and asked me if I would uh, play on a record with him. He's going to do some recording in Los Angeles, and asked me if I'd play on a record. And I said, Sure, I'd love to. So anyway, Elvis came out, and um, they were talking, and and um, he he walked up to Elvis and asked him if uh, if I could play on a record with him, you know. And Elvis said, Well, ask him. <laughs> Elvis said, Sure, I don't mind, you know. I mean, it was like I. Uh, I mean, I I was working with everybody anyway, and Elvis Elvis didn't mind. He didn't care what we did, you know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, because I just go out when uh, when you know we would book a tour, and they would always call me, and, and I would do it per show contract type thing, you know, per show. So I didn't want to. Uh, I, I just felt better about doing it that way, not being obligated, you know. But uh, he was such a fun guy to work with. Uh, I stayed with him up, I was with him up to the end. And I imagine if he were here today, uh, uh, we would be on tour. Yeah. He loved doing that, didn't he? he yeah, it was great. He, he loved to go out in front of a live audience. And that was his thing. He really, he really, he loved it. 
In fact, were you en route to the next concert when he passed away? We were. We were on route, uh, en route to the very next show, which was in Portland, Maine. And uh, we had a phone call. We had picked up uh, some of the musicians, uh, orchestra people and uh, singers in Las Vegas. And we were on our way, and uh, we had a phone call very shortly after we took off. And they said, well, we were probably in the air for about a half hour. And uh, they called and said, return to, to Vegas. And uh, we had no idea why. Uh, the thing that came to my mind, maybe Elvis's dad uh, had some heart problems and maybe something happened to his dad. And uh, anyway, we, we had to stop and refuel. And uh, then Marty Harrell, the trombone player, Marty said, James, I'm going to go make a phone call to Vegas and see, see what I can find out. So he did. And uh, then he came back to the plane and he came up to me and he told me, he said, uh, put his arms around me, he said, um, Elvis passed away. He was like, shocked, you know, I couldn't, I mean, is this a joke, you know, and he said, no, it's for real. And uh, it was a long flight back to Memphis. And uh, <clears throat> then I went on back to my home in Burbank, California, and I said, and to look alike, and I said, well, see if I can get a plane out to Memphis, and uh, which uh, all the flights, all the airlines were booked. And uh, finally, I got a lady in, uh, with American Airlines that got me a flight. And I flew down and spent a week there and uh, was there for the funeral, my wife and I. And that was a very sad time, you know, uh, to lose such a wonderful uh, entertainer and such a wonderful person, you know. And uh, the, the whole world just like, you know, very, very well, very similar to you know the the Pope passing away. You know, it's just a it's a it's a world matter. You know, everyone's concerned. And you were in the middle of it, really. Yeah, I I really, you know, I, it it took me a long time to really get over the shock and and the reality of of it really happened. And um, uh, it was it was a very sad time and. And I had a lot of phone calls from a lot of friends uh, paying their respects and, you know, cause he had so many wonderful friends and fans in the whole world, you know. So it was a, an incredible loss to the, to the, the world, you know, the, to the music industry, to everything, you know, music, everything about music and, and the movies, all the movies he did. You know, but he'll live forever. I mean, his music and, you know, what he was really about, he's just incredible idol to the whole world. And now let's hear from DJ Fontana again. Um, he'll be talking about hanging out with other talent. So that means hanging out with other people that worked with Elvis, as well as keeping in touch with Elvis. I never tried to hang out with any of the stars I worked with. The closest superstar was Roy Orbison. He was a neighbor of mine. His kids went to the same school, and uh, uh, he'd call me and say, well, will you buy this guitar for me? And I'd buy it, go up to his house and everything. But, no, I never tried to hang out with else. I invited him to go water skiing, because my wife was a tournament water skier at that time, and uh, he, we kind of laughed about that, you know. But no, I never did, uh, I never did hang out, because he worked uh, during those nights, and I know Grady Martin, who was overweight at that time, told him after the first time he, he did one of those things because 
I worked eight to eight Sunday night, and he went, got breakfast, went to bed. I got breakfast. I worked the rest of the day. Met him back over there and did another night, you know. And Grady told him, he said, "Man, I love you like a brother, but I can't do this again." But uh, I don't know. It was just—it's so wonderful. We have wonderful players. I think that's one of the things. I, we don't want to disown the players. I think they're better than, much better than I am. It's just that we lived in a particular era where it was, things were different and it was exciting. It was really exciting to, to try to create something, to come up with something. And some, and especially with the artists that uh, had so much talent as Elvis and Roy. Always great to hear from DJ Fontana, Elvis's first drummer. Uh, and moving on to uh, a significant talent uh, for Elvis's career, James Burton, who continues to perform. He'll be in Shreveport, Louisiana, his, uh, his base now, uh, in a couple of programs in 2018 here. So uh, look out for that. A very interesting and talented person for sure. Um, and his perspective is always to me very enjoyable because he really has a great understanding having played with uh, Ricky Nelson, um, John Denver, Neil Diamond, others. So he really does know for which he speaks. So uh, let's hear a little bit from uh, James Burton. I knew the first time we played there, uh, uh, it was record breaking. I mean, it was, he broke the record in Las Vegas and uh, the attendance and everything. And it was amazing because um, he was worried about what you know what might happen with that show and and it was so great uh, he just wanted to continue doing it and I guess they signed a contract with him to do it twice a year and uh, then we also toured you know and I played on records I did everything uh, from 69 up till he died I played on records everything everything he did, everything he did mm-hmm. yeah. yeah it was great it was really wonderful working with him. He was, a, other than being a, a great entertainer, a great showman, uh, he was a great person. Mm-hmm. And that really makes it worthwhile, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you want to go to work then, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it was interesting. It was fun, and it was, it was, uh, it was really good. Now, I know um, a couple of your favorite are the Ricky Nelson recordings, but do you have a couple of favorite things that you did with Elvis? Yeah, uh, like uh, we did a lot of great live stuff. I played on a lot of uh, also recordings, and uh, we did Moody Blue, all those in the studio, uh, Burning Love, all those. Uh, and we did a lot of live things like uh, Suspicious Minds. You know, he did an album in 68 um, when he did the comeback special, and that's when he recorded uh, In the Ghetto and uh, Suspicious Minds in the studio mm-hmm. in Memphis. And uh, but. For some reason, we started playing it uh, live, and uh, which was a, a faster than the record, the recording, and uh, he liked it better uh, for the live recording, and that seemed to be the one that uh, they played most. And uh, I liked all the songs we did. I mean, everything was great. Uh, the ballads, uh, all the country stuff, all the the rock and roll stuff, all the a lot of his old stuff, Mystery Train, and you know, that's all right, Little Mama, and and. He did all that stuff. I mean, it was great. We just had the feel for it. You know, it was good. He loved it. I don't know. It just it, there's some solos that you can't change. You know, it, it just it just doesn't seem to work when you try to change them. 
but um, it, it was back in those days. Uh, even today when I play them, I play the same solo. And uh, I don't try to change it because it just, you know, it's still fresh, you know. I love it. Uh, so now we're going to hear our final clip from Clips, plural, from Scotty Moore. Um, and talking who better to hear from towards the end here than the guy that really was there upon discovering Elvis and was instrumental in getting his career off the ground and um, remained friends with him until the end. And even though they didn't work together towards the end of Elvis's life, uh, they still considered each other friends. So we're going to hear from Scotty uh, kind of about the conclusion of Elvis's life, what it was like the last time seeing him, hearing about the news of Elvis's tragic passing, as well as probably my favorite clip from the entire Scotty Moore interview, talking about his Scotty's perception on Elvis being deemed the quote-unquote king of rock and roll and what that means because I think that's a pretty universal opinion. A lot of people buy into that and agree with it and Scotty does to some degree but he also changes the terms a little bit um, which I find fascinating because I I really uh, agree with Scotty's perspective. So was the uh, the uh, departure of your relationship on friendly terms? Yeah. I mean, well, yeah, it was... I've had people say, well, why did you, you, you didn't talk to him after that? Uh, I was busy. I said, well, I was busy, yeah. I had a studio, I was engineering a business, and uh, I said, as far as talking to him, I could call and leave a message, but I'd never know if he got the message. And uh, so as I said, it's a lot easier for him to call me than me to call him. And it was just, just that simple. It wasn't anything... Uh, personal or anything, falling out or anything. In fact, uh, to back up a little bit, you, uh, uh, when we did uh, the uh, TV special, uh, Elvis asked DJ, and, well, my, my wife, my wife at the time, the current wife, as you say, <laughs> now she was with me out there, and uh, he asked us to come out, out to his house and have dinner. And because the baby was just like a month old or something at the time, and because uh, Emily, uh, my wife, she wanted to wanted to see the baby, of course, and everything. And uh, so we went out and uh, had dinner, and uh, Priscilla wasn't there; she was out doing something. And uh, after dinner, well, Emily went in with the. Uh, the babysitter or whatever, and was looking at the baby, and, and they always asked DJ, and I said, uh, "So come in, come in here, just motion to the other room, come in, I want to talk to you." Which was very. We both looked at each other, you know, because it said fixing to chew us out or something. It was just something he never did. Usually, if you care if he was a hundred people or three, or if he had something to say to you, just say it, you know. And we went in, and he uh, he said, uh, "said you got, would you guys like to do a European tour?" And of course, Bob both said, "Well, sure." I said, and, uh, "said she give us a little notice, you know." And uh, I was, I was thinking of the studios. I'd have to make plans on that. And he said, "Well, I want to do a European studio, uh, a European tour, and we're going to do one." I said, "Great." And then he turned to me. He said, "Scott, I said you still have your studio." I said, yeah. He said, what's the chances of getting in there and locking up for a couple of weeks? And I just, 
I don't know what kind of look he had on my face. I said, uh, well, yeah, it's just like the tourists. And, uh, I need a little notice to block the time out. I didn't tell him I was going to charge him for the time. <laughs> I mean, I had said stuff to... You know, if he went in somebody else's studio, they were going, well, he's going to have to pay. That's right. And, uh, <laughs> and he did, that was it. That was basically the end of the conversation. And uh, uh, nothing ever came of it. Never heard another word. Uh, so obviously management shot the whole shooting match down. I would, uh, I mean, I didn't, maybe I was too flabbergasted to, at the time to ask, well, what have you got in mind? What do you want? You know, you want you got some kind of something new you want to try musically, or you want to go back to something, or uh, I, I wondered about that uh, ever since. Is what he might. I may be wrong, but I think he just wanted to get control of his own music again, uh, like we had before, where we got in and. and because uh, it had gotten to the point uh, with the published with the well, you got to get writer, you get get half of this because we're going to do this song and we can get it and uh, you know put it in our publishing company and all the all the business side of it, and uh, that's where these stories came about him. Tell me a little bit about the uh, was that the last time you worked with Elvis? Or that was the last time that was the last, worked. That was the last time either one of us worked with him, and it was the last time I saw him. I think DJ saw him uh, one, more, once, one more time. Uh, he'd went through Memphis or something, or, or went down there to see him. And, uh, but that was the last time I saw him, and uh, last time I worked with him. Hmm. Now, uh, I can't remember the exact date, or a couple of months went by. Well, I guess it would have been into the next year because it would have been after that. Uh, we did that uh, special in August, uh, some, because it was a Christmas special, so they're always done two, three months ahead. And uh, for Singer Sewing Machine, and but it ran in December, so it would have been into the next year when the management called. Uh, and wanted all the guys in Nashville that would, had worked with him to come to Vegas. He was going. He's going into Vegas for a couple of two weeks, I think, was what I remember. And but we wanted to sit there for a week for rehearsals. We just so happened that Nashville at that point, that's before all the studios started building. We only had uh, about three major studios, three or four. And uh, recording, recording here in Nashville at that time was at, at a peak. I mean, the Jordanaires alone had 40 sessions on the books with one producer, Owen Bradley. Not only, not just one artist, but he had already booked them for people coming in. And uh, DJ's playing two and three sessions a day. All the other guys, Bob Moore, Boots, everybody's working sessions. I'm engineering three and four a day because I had my own studio at the time. Mm. And uh, what they had offered us per week to come out there, uh, everybody was making that a half a day or at least a day. 
And so we all, all of, well, we actually had a meeting here and got got together and said, man, we'd like to go, you know, but said, so we figured out some kind of average kind of that would see, would make it worthwhile because uh, Owen had told, told Jordan this, and now if you guys go out there, he said, I'm sorry, but I'll have to get another group, and I'm not going to just get another group for the time you're gone. You know, it's the, and uh, so we came up with a figure, and I don't remember what it was, to uh, send back to them that would make it feasible for everybody to just shut down and go out there and do it. And of course, there was no way they were going to pay it. And uh, so we see what happened to the Vegas thing. <laughs> now, you know, whether it would have made any difference if he said, well, as soon as he does Vegas, we're going back on the road, we're going to do this, that, and the other. Uh, I don't know. That's hindsight. Mm -hmm. I was in, uh, in uh, I was working at, uh, was then Monument uh, Studios. Uh, doing some, uh, not a session, I was doing some editing or mixing or something, and uh, uh, the secretary there, somebody had called her, and she came over and told me, and then, then a couple of minutes later, my wife called in and told me about it. It happened. I was surprised, but I wasn't surprised because the last thing I had seen in, I guess, late either late 76 or early 77 with some footage that was made on one of the concerts where it was just absolutely, it just looked like your skin is going to bust. It was so bloated. And I knew then that there was something terrible, terrible wrong. Uh, he had, I, I don't think he could see himself in the mirror because he was a very vain man. He couldn't, he couldn't pass a mirror without checking his hair or something. And, uh, and to go back to the, the last time I saw him in 1968, the special, he was, a, I mean, he, the coroner, he was an Adonis. I mean, he was absolutely in beautiful shape. He felt good. He was full of energy. I mean, he was let me out of the chute. You know, I'm ready to go. And he was, he only had one or I don't one or two movies, maybe only just one to finish or something, and then he was ready. He was ready to go back on the road. You know, it's all music. You know, it's, uh, in fact, I uh, always have my my argument on the of Elvis being uh, uh, king of uh, rock and roll. Well, you know, what's rock and roll? I always say he was if he was the king of pop, he was actually the king of pop. Because mm -hmm. what is pop? Pop is short for popular music. And if popular music means that the the uh, biggest portion of the country is listening to a certain song. Mm -hmm. So that's my argument. And here is our final clip for this episode of the podcast um, from DJ Fontana. And his topic is perfect to, to wrap up this podcast. Could there be another Elvis? I got a loaded question for you. Do you see another Elvis coming down the pike? I don't think so. <laughs> I'd like to see somebody come out of left field like he did. And, and get the ball rolling again. Sell a lot of records for all, you know, all these companies. But I don't see it coming.
So forgive our audio on that. Again, that was an open floor Q&A at one of the NAMM shows. That's why you hear, I'm sure Mike is going to do a fabulous job in post-production and you won't even know what I'm talking about. Hopefully. <laughs> but that's why you hear a lot of the background noise and shuffling of people moving about the hall. So, um, But the question posed, and I think we should get everybody, all three of our opinions personally, but nose goes, I don't want to go first. Me neither. Oh, so we'll start with Dan. <laughs> Dan. Do you think there could be another Elvis? That is a great question. I would have to answer it by defining what you mean by that, because, of course, there's only one person named Elvis Presley who comes along at that particular time that introduced the music that he did that brought um, a lot of white audiences to African-American music. Um, so what he represented and how he got started, it, it'll never happen again. However, can there be somebody who can spearhead a revolution in music and change people's opinion of music and give something different musically to the world? And I think the answer, of course, is yes. Um, and I'm very hopeful that that happens. I think every generation can point and say, well, this is a person who was sort of the Elvis of our generation. And I really do hope that that continues to happen. And with the world the way it is now and, you know, much more global uh, musically, the hope is that this will happen all over the place, you know, in small little towns in Africa and in Russia and China, you know, there's lots of opportunities for musicians to come forth and bring together various styles of music to new audiences. And in that respect, I think there should certainly be another Elvis. We shouldn't have let him go first. He took all the good answers, right? <laughs> That's what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. Your turn. <laughs> well, I definitely think that there could be another Elvis type person. I just think it would have to be... Um, different just because of how the way everything works these days um, the music industry as a whole has changed so much since Elvis was around um, I think the ideas that Elvis brought and um, what he contributed to music could definitely be um, it could definitely happen again um, in a different way um, you know bringing just bringing new music um, to new people and being kind of a figure that everybody looks up to. That could definitely happen. It's just going to have to be different in the new uh, music industry. Yeah, I'd, I'd probably completely agree with both of you guys. I think there's always that potential for someone to become as iconic and defining of a generation as Elvis was during his time. Um, I think the idea of being a double or a triple threat in terms of movie career, uh, music career, you know, today it's dancing or fashion or whatever. That makes that more of a reality too. Think of how many current popular music stars we have double, triple, quadruple dipping into the entertainment industry. So I think that he kind of broke ground in that sense. Um, but I'm not super confident. You know, I think that one, we're, our musical tastes are so, for the most part, I think people have such a wide range of musical tastes that one genre, one person really defining everything they listen to is 
a more slim experience now. And I think the fact that we're so globally connected with our music, we can jump online and listen to whatever we want in a moment's notice. And yeah, maybe you have to pay a subscription fee or you have to download an album and pay for it or something like that. But it's all at the tip of our fingers. So the radio domination play that you would have gotten with Elvis back in the day is just not, it doesn't seem like a thing anymore. But I also haven't listened to the radio in probably about 10 years. So, (laughs) And you know, you bring up a good point when Elvis came around he was the first I mean the first super famous person that was able to sing dance act play instruments do all of this stuff and now I feel like it's a requirement (laughs) if you don't do more than one thing good luck yeah if you want a music career you better be acting you better be dancing you better be at least writing or something you better have the best personality there is so it's almost like there's too many Elvises now and it's become watered down maybe yeah like so yeah. so yeah hearing what you said it, it makes me want to change my answer a little bit and say i still think there could be it's a figure potential yeah but they'll have to totally reinvent mm-hmm. everything and i mean i don't even know what that would be right. i don't even know what they would do they'd have to be superman i mean we even have pop stars going to space now right and so, probably i mean probably already on mars yeah. we don't know <laughs> another thing that i thought was interesting in, in um, listening to Mike's response is the the inspiration that Elvis provided the musicians. You know, we just heard from a slew of folks that got to play with Elvis, perform with him, record with him, um, and work with him, like in the uh, studios. And he provided, with his energy, inspiration for them to make the most out of their instruments and the most out of their talent. And you know, th- that really conjures up these concepts of the studio musicians that can play for a myriad of different performers. And that's a whole era that um, is very significant because um, as a musician, we really want to take advantage of who we're playing with. And a lot of that inspiration might come from somebody who has a big um, presence and talent like Elvis did. So they were able to really glom on to that and uh, make the most of their performance themselves. And as you can tell, they were all very proud of that. They were not just proud of the fact that Elvis was famous and now we're still talking about all these years later, but that they could make a contribution to what he was doing um, and uh, with their own talent and their own instruments. So I, I always thought that that was a, an important element of his, of his legacy and his influence. So if you liked, uh, oh, I guess I should ask you guys, any other final thoughts before we wrap it up? I just want to thank you guys both. I love doing these podcasts. Uh, Mike, I know, works extra hard on the post-production of this. So thank you very much for uh, all that you guys do. So if you liked what you heard uh, or you've been liking what you've been hearing in general, we really encourage you to jump on and rate and review our podcast, whether you're whatever platform you may be listening in, that would be really beneficial to us. If you have any ideas or contributions you want to send our way, possible topics, uh, you can do that by emailing us at library at nam.org or you know, comments, suggestions. Yeah. If you think there could be another Elvis, I'd love to hear that perspective. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if you're looking to leave a review, um, right on iTunes, you just click write a review under ratings and reviews. It's pretty simple, straightforward. And on SoundCloud, uh, leaving comments, we'll see all of those. So feel free to leave your thoughts. Yeah. Thanks. We'll see you guys in two weeks. Thank you very much.
Oh, thank, thank you. you very much. Thank you a lot. <laughs> oh, wait, no? Oh, okay. <laughs>